1: Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm departing slightly from our usual format by interviewing Helen Rappaport, the historian who has produced the companion volume to Victoria, The Heart and Mind of a Young Queen. The reason for this change is that Helen Rappaport serves as a historical consultant for the ITV PBS miniseries Victoria, due to launch in the United States on January 15th. As the official companion to the television series, her book details the historical background on which the fictionalized series is based. For those listeners who, due to fear of footnotes and excessive detail, prefer to absorb their history from fiction, let me note that Rappaport's biography reads as fluently as any novel, as evidenced by this short excerpt from Chapter One It Was a Rather Melancholy Childhood. <laughs> On 28th April, 1819, a raggle-taggle convoy of 20 carriages, thick with the dust and grime of 30 days on bumpy roads from Ammerbach in Bavaria, rattled up the drive of London's Kensington Palace. The journey its exhausted occupants had just completed, along with a mountain of luggage, two Russian lapdogs, and a cage of singing birds, had been a frenetic race against time to ensure that the first legitimate heir to the British throne to be produced by any of George III's sons be born in England. The soon-to-be parents were Edward, Duke of Kent, the fourth of the nine sons of George III, and his wife Marie-Louise Victoire, formerly a princess of the German duchy of Saxe-Coburg-Saalfeld. They had until now been living at Ammerbach in greatly straitened circumstances, thanks to an accumulation of debts brought on by the Duke's compulsive overspending from the moment he completed his military training. Their one hope of a change in fortunes had followed the death of Princess Charlotte of Wales, the Duke's niece and Duchess's sister-in-law, who had died tragically in 1817. If the Duke outlived his elder, childless brothers, he would become king, and the child his wife was soon to bear, the one most likely to outlive them all, would be fifth in line to the British throne. And now, please join me in welcoming Helen Rappaport. Hello, Helen. Thank you for agreeing to today's interview.
0: Thank you for inviting me. Uh,
1: Before we get to Victoria, I'd like to talk about something we have in common. We're both Russian historians, although we specialize in different periods. You've written about Lenin, Stalin, the Crimean War, the later Romanos, and the 1917 revolution, uh, including a book due out later this year to commemorate the centennial of the revolution. I was
0: going to say the book is actually in a month's time, not later this year. I should have mentioned that.
1: Oh, so it's coming out in to it's coincide with seventh, the February.
0: Yes, yeah, seventh of February. I don't want people to think it's not going to come out till October. It's coming out in time for the February Revolution. The anniversary of the February Revolution in Russia.
1: Okay, that's great. So, what drew you into Russian studies, and especially the years surrounding the revolution?
0: Well, I first got interested in Russia a very, very long time ago. I think I was at that impressionable teenage stage where I was looking for something to to have a passion about. And I think it actually began when I first read the short stories of Anton Chekhov. And I don't know, something about Russia that was mysterious and distant and hard to fathom uh, attracted me. And I fell in love with Russia. And I, I was very lucky. I was at a girls' grammar school, and I was able to study Russian at O-level and then A-level. And by then, I had such a passion for all things Russian um, that I went on and studied um, Russian at university.
1: I I fell in love with Russia, too. I think if most Russian historians will admit, if you ask them, that that's really what happened. It's a kind of... uh, Romance. It's very,
0: know. yeah, it's very seductive. Russia. I think because Russia's that bit removed, being slightly Byzantine, you know. It it isn't quite the same as Western Europe. It has that difference that I love, and particularly the the icons and the music, the the Russian bells, the church bells. It, it's just. I don't know, it's it's very seductive and romantic. I mean, to be corny, I think a lot of people of my generation got their sense of Russia from the film Dr. Zhivago.
1: And the whole history is very much like a movie, really. You know, (laughs) (laughs) Britain and the U.S. are so dull by comparison.
0: (laughs) Yes, but a, a very tragic story and very... Dark at times and very turbulent and violent, of course. But then that's all part of the kind of fascination I think of Russia. Yes, it has this incredible sweep and dynamic, and and the landscape, the music, the the literature. I mean, I find it so involving. I always have done.
1: So after you were uh, specialised in it in school, you did say that,
0: right? I, I, yeah, in in sixth form, I studied Russian in the sixth form. So
1: how did, you, how did your studies, the, the, the historical works that you wrote, how did they come about?
0: Oh, well, a very long and circuitous route because um, after studying Russian at university, I didn't immediately begin writing. I didn't actually start writing history until much, much later in my life, in my 50s. Um, I pursued other things at first, though I've always loved history, and and I had a passion for history, and I had been a freelance writer for a long time. But my first real work with Russian was translating for the British Theatre, doing literal versions, um, which would be the basis for new versions by well-known playwrights. So I was doing that in between unsuccessfully working as an actress, I'm afraid I had a rather dismal failed acting career, which I pursued for a while, but um, I didn't. I didn't actually get into writing, really sitting down and writing history, till much, much later. And finally, took the plunge of writing my first uh, history book in uh, 1998.
1: Ah, and which one was that?
0: The biographical companion to Joseph Stalin.
1: Right. Okay. Um, and then you became interested in the Romanos.
0: Well, no, actually, I, again, I, I wrote um, I wrote three large um, academic reference books for an American publisher called ABC Clio back to back. Very uh, incredibly hard work for very little money. I wrote the Stalin book, then I did a biographical companion to Queen Victoria. And I also researched and wrote um, a big two-volume book on women social reformers. And it was at that point, having done those three books, reference books, I felt I really wanted to write a proper monograph a, a, about one particular subject that interested me. And, but it was making that transition and getting a deal for a trade book as opposed to an academic reference book. And the first book I I, I did in my own right that way, was the book about women in the Crimean War. And I, I I went from there and wrote about Queen Victoria. But the Romanovs didn't come into the frame, actually, until 2006. And I was in that period between finishing one book and wondering what on earth I was going to do next and I had this conversation with the agent I was with at the time and he said, well, you know, you're a Russianist, you studied Russian, why don't you do a big Russian subject and I said, well, oh, I'm not sure that there's anything that appeals to me, I don't particularly want to do Soviet history and I'm not very interested in, in uh, the earlier Russian history and he said, well, what about Romanov? I said, oh, no. All that schmaltz, all that saccharine, all those, you know, girls in pretty frocks. I felt that Romanovs as such was a rather sentimental subject. And I kind of laugh at myself now because uh, I said, well, I, I don't want to do a biography of Nicholas and Alexandra or something like that. I said, I might be interested in one particular aspect of the last imperial family story, And the agent said, and it was very wise advice, very, very wise advice, and I'm always grateful for it. He said, well, don't do that. Go and have a look at a little part of the story. Think of a time frame. Think of a point of the story that does interest you. He said, well, how about the last day of their life? And he threw that at me. I said, oh, no. Um, Well, maybe the last year or something like that. And I went away and did some research, and it very, very quickly Kind of jumped out at me that there was, in fact, a scenario I could do for the last, say, the last two weeks of the family's life in Ekaterinburg, and that's how I came up with the idea for that book. But uh, I had actually never thought of doing the Romanovs till that point.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah,
0: and in fact, Ru- Russian Royals was probably the last thing. It appealed to me. So almost by accident, I've ended up being a royal historian because, of course, I also write on Queen Victoria, (laughs) who I find endlessly interesting. She never bores me.
1: No, she really is fascinating, much more fascinating than I realized before I read your book. That does get to my next question, which is that there is a clear interest in women's history that runs through your work. And we should mention that a lot of the books are published under one title in the UK and a different title in the US. So um, if I say, you know, The Four Sisters or The Romanov Sisters... People need to check, um, their own mm. country website to be sure that this is the right title. But, um, yeah, there's a book on the woman in Crimea more. There's a book on the Romanovs. Um, there's, but you also have a book on Madame Rachel of Bond Street, whom I had never heard of, but she's described as a cosmetician, con artist, and a blackmailer.
0: Well, she is the most glorious find. You see, one of the things I love doing with writing history is uncovering stories that are in the footnotes, forgotten people, people who've been overlooked, stories that no one has picked up on because it is such fun when you find an untouched subject. And Madame Rachel was one of these um, stories I picked up literally in passing, when reading about something else, and I came across this reference to this woman called Sarah Rachel Leverson, who called herself Madame Rachel, and set herself up in business in Bond Street, um, charging silly, gullible women enormous amounts of money for totally bogus cosmetic treatments. But, but you know, and I thought the actual idea behind it was so modern. Actually, it's the it's this constant quest to stay beautiful forever that was her marketing catchphrase she was a very very clever woman so she sets herself up in business and fleeces the rich aristocratic ladies of london of enormous amounts of money and and actually had uh, was tried twice for fraud and i reconstructed the entire story from all the newspaper coverage of her so there was a much she was in and out of the papers for 20 years Everyone knew who Madame Rachel was, and yet somehow her story had been totally lost. And as someone who loves women's history and wants to promote it at every opportunity, I thought, oh, this is a gift. I can tell the story of a really strong, in fact, quite frightening woman that no one knows about. Um, And it was a joy to write, and I'm so, so thrilled because we have just optioned dramatic rights. Or um, British television series.
1: So that's great. Um, so this would be like another
0: masterpiece theatre miniseries kind of thing. Oh, please go. Well, the interesting thing is that I, at the time I wrote Madame Rachel, my U.S. publisher wasn't interested, so it hasn't been published in America. But of course, I'm hoping with all the interest in Queen Victoria and also the kind of fashion for steampunk and Victorian Gothic stuff that um, we might now be able to find an American publisher for it. I think it's a great story. It's a London story. It's got lots of resonances with uh, the quest women are are going through today to try and stay beautiful forever. And so I really hope that it will find an American home because I think Americans would love it.
1: Oh, I'm sure they would. Um, You know, U.S. publishers or any publishers really are... Yeah, you know, they're trying to figure out what's going to hit a mass market. But my goodness, I mean, all of Hollywood its on that quest.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, you know, they're always looking for new ideas. Well, I had this vision of Helen Mirren in a black wig playing Madame Rachel. I think she could be very scary and sinister. But <laughs> anyway, you know, this is the thing being historian. You always fantasize, even... You know, writing non-fiction, you fantasize about selling the rights to your books and who, who would you cast, you know, in the roles.
1: Oh, I absolutely do. Yes, I agree. So um, we would hope that you would be the historical consultant on that series also. Um, what does a historical consultant do? What, what is your contribution to the Victoria series, for example?
0: Well, it's an interesting job and at times it can be a very difficult one because as a historian i am wedded to the truth but in tv drama you are having to deal with a a certain degree of dramatic license and there are always going to be points in any script you work on where the truth conflicts with what's been written to create a dramatic scene so my role as historical consultant is to very carefully read the go through them, comment on anything I think is inaccurate or uh, wrong historically. But the difficulty is is, is that really historical consultancy on any TV drama is only advisory. You can't insist, even if you know that that particular um, scene didn't happen until a year late historically, a year later, or even several years later, you can only say, well, that timing is wrong. You can point these things out. You can't insist. It is entirely up to the scriptwriter and the pro- producers of, uh, of any uh, drama like that to decide what they pay attention to and what they ignore. And sometimes one has to fight one's corner. You know, there are some points in interpretation that I defend very fiercely when it comes to Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, but it doesn't mean I necessarily win the battle.
1: So this is a show on new books and historical fiction primarily. So you are the, um, the opposite side of that because you can't have historical fiction without history. I mean, even if you have invented all of the characters, you still have to deal with the historical background. And so there's this constant yeah. tension. Between the needs of the dramatic story and the needs to preserve the past. And as a historian who writes historical fiction, I'm constantly dealing with that in my own novels because, you know, I want to look good among my peers. I don't want them to go, oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. (laughs)
0: Um, I think the key thing, I, I think the key thing I discovered working on Victoria was what, for me, is forgivable in terms of dramatic license. There are a lot of things that are forgivable in terms of dramatic license if the writer has, is true to the character of the people he or she is depicting. And what I found really, really important about Daisy, Daisy Goodwin's scripts was she was so on the money in her observation of Victoria's personality, what made her tick, and that although, you know, there's a, quite a fair bit of dramatic license in the writing of certain themes and people aren't, you know, weren't in a particular place when in the story they what they are, is that, you know, I found her, her analysis, her representation of Victoria absolutely spot on for me as a historian. And that, to me, is the, the absolute crucial factor. Are the characters true? To the people that they really were insofar as one can do that.
1: So that brings us to your book uh, or your latest book because obviously you have other books. And what's particularly interesting or what was particularly interesting to me about this series is that it focuses very much on the young Victoria. Yeah. And I think it's probably safe to say that uh, people... In the U.S. or in even in the U.K., who think about Victoria? Think about the old Victoria, right? She's exactly, this old lady in black who with the lace bonnet, and she's not amused, and she gives her name well, to that's an a age. Myth. That's yeah, a myth for I know. A start.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's wonderful because this is exactly what Daisy wanted to get away from. I mean, you say Queen Victoria, and I think most p- people's knee-jerk response is Judy Dench in Mrs. Brown with um, Billy Connolly, which was a, is an absolutely fantastic portrayal of the Queen. But it's the older Queen, the widowed Queen. And the image of Victoria in black in mourning as this grumpy old widow has kind of been fixed on the British and, and most people's consciousness. And I think what's wonderful about this, Theories, and please, God, I know the intention is to explore Victoria's reign over several series. The great thing is that it gives Daisy the scope to home in, to put the microscope on much more, uh, in greater detail, on, on events in the rain that are normally skimmed over or not mentioned at all. So it gave her time in series one, which just covers barely three years to explore all the business of the bedchamber crisis and the Lady Flora Hastings affair. But most importantly, it gave time for an exploration of Victoria's relationship with her prime minister, Lord Melbourne, her relationship with her mother. Uh, But of course, in order to make all that work for television, Daisy also had to create a counterpoint to all the upstairs drama and the the bling and the candles and the grand set pieces, which was a kind of uh, domestic world below stairs. It's a kind of upstairs, downstairs, Downton Abbey contrast. So most of the downstairs characters are fictional or only very loosely based on real people.
1: Uh, okay, so uh, Scarrett and all of these people are essentially her invention, even if they correspond in name to
0: well, Skerritt's name is all that all that is similar because there was a real dresser called Marianne Skerritt who became the Queen's very great confidante and friend, and effectively personal secretary. Stayed with her for donkey's years. The the you know the fictional Skerritt, Nancy Skerritt, um is not at all remotely like the real Queen's dresser. Of the same surname. Okay.
1: So the series, well, actually, I haven't seen the series yet because it's only starting to be aired here on uh, Sunday the 15th. But the book, uh, your book and also Daisy's novel start with Victoria as a child when she's actually called Alexandrina.
0: Yeah. So tell us about... Well, she, that, was her, that was her christening. She was christened Alexandrina on the whim of King the King King George, because um, he you know no one, he couldn't make up his mind what name this child was going to be given. Her mother wanted her to be Victoire, which was her name, i.e. the French version of Victoria, but George didn't like it. And uh, literally at the front of the christening, he said, "Oh, we'll call her Alexandrina after the Tsar Alexander, with whom uh, you know they'd successfully seen off Napoleon in eighteen 18- 14, 18, 15, and throughout her childhood at home with mother, her mother called her Drina for short, but that name got dropped very quickly, and when she became queen, she immediately insisted that she wanted to be Queen Victoria, not Queen um, Elizabeth or some other assumed title.
1: Yes, that was kind of a scandal, actually, that she didn't want a quote-unquote English name. Although one of the names was
0: Charlotte, right? Oh Well, there were a whole string of names. She had several. One was Charlotte after um, her uncle's daughter who died shortly after giving birth and who would have been queen um, had she survived. Um, You know, had Charlotte survived, there would have been no Queen Victoria. Um, So, you know, I think that people very quickly accepted the name Victoria and, of course, it set its stamp on the hop, virtually, you know, well, on the next sixty-three years and and beyond.
1: Yes, I mean it's it's one of those things you look back from now and you think, why why was it even a question? You know.
0: Mm, but Victoria did not like her mother calling her Drina in front of people once she was queen, and I think she <coughs> put a stop to it rather sooner than she stops using it in the series. So her she's... mother used it as a pet name. I mean, oh. she was also called as a pet name May Blossom because she was born in May, and her German granny liked to call her Mayblume. Um That that was another pet name for her. Huh. So,
1: tell us about her childhood. She lived a rather restricted childhood, right?
0: Well, she had a very restricted childhood. Once uh, it was clear that she was the next in line for the throne. She had to be protected and cosseted and nurtured for the, the enormous role um, and also protected from predators even, you know. So she was pretty much locked away at Kensington Palace with governesses and nurses. And um, closely. Oh, her education was very closely overseen by her mother and her governess, the Baroness Lazen. And her mother's um, controller of her mother's household Sir John Conroy, who also interfered quite extensively in Victoria's upbringing and and effectively introduced this system which became known as the Kensington system, under which Victoria's life was very closely controlled. She was a very lonely child. She had very few playmates. She had... I mean, Sir John Conroy had a daughter. She played with her occasionally. But as such, you know, her companions were her mother, Baroness Lason, her dolls and her dog.
1: And what was the Kensington system? Sorry? What was the Kensington system?
0: Well, it, it, it was called that because of Kensington Palace. It right, wasn't but- a particular system. It just became nicknamed that, which was a closely... Protected system of, you know, education and fresh air and walks and um, um, being taught all the social graces, but in in a very restricted way. Ah, I see. It was there was no, I no special educational um, um, exceptional circumstances about it. it. Just got nicknamed that because of Kensington Palace where she lived.
1: Yes, I understand now. Thanks. Um, so it's really the result of other people's bad luck that Victoria becomes queen at all. Um, how does she go from fifth in line to first in line?
0: Well, as you know, King George the Third had many sons, and there was a, was of course a pecking order in the succession. The first one, the first one would be the Prince Regent, who became King George the Fourth. And as I said, he had one only one legitimate child. His daughter Charlotte, who died shortly after childbirth. So that discounts George. The next in line was the Duke of York, who had no children. The next in line, who did become king after George IV died, was William IV, but sadly for William IV, although he'd had an enormous menage of illegitimate children with an actress, none of them could be heirs to the throne. And the legitimate children he had with his wife, Queen Adelaide, all sadly died either immediately after birth but always very quickly. So that brings us to the fourth son in line who was Victoria's father, the Duke of Kent. Now, he would technically have become king after William IV, but unfortunately, the Duke of Kent died suddenly, in fact, six days before George III died in 1820. So once the Duke of Kent had died, His legitimate heir was Victoria, and Victoria was the next one in line.
1: Um, So Victoria's barely 18 uh, when she's woken up in the middle of the night and informed that she's now Queen of the British Empire, which at the time made her the most powerful ruler in the world. And on the surface, the cards are stacked against her. She's a young woman in a man's world. She doesn't have a lot of social experience. Her mother, and more important from Victoria's perspective, I think her mother's controller, are right there, eager to give her advice. Yet um, she copes.
0: How does she Well, I, just, I find it quite extraordinary that a young woman who's led such a cloistered life should, the moment she become queen, demonstrate such incredible self-possession. And I think she was partly prepared for that by Baroness Layton, her governess who steered her and um, advised her. But she had this enormous sense of self, of her duty, of the enormous task she was taking on. And rather than sort of fade away in sheer terror at the prospect, she kind of grabbed at it and relished it. And, and, and entered into it with enormous gusto and enthusiasm.
1: And this is where we really see her as different from the kind of mental image that most people have of Victoria. I mean, she's, yeah, she's intense, yeah. she's excited, she's passionate, she falls in love with young men, and uh, she seems to fall and in love with her prime minister. An,
0: sorry, and she's also involved in the job. That she's yes. doing, as opposed to after she w- was widowed, when she became overwhelmed with having to deal with the dispatch boxes and the business of government. As a young queen, in fact, you get the opposite. She doesn't want to share it even with Albert. She wants to do it all herself. She wants to be in control. But once she marries Albert and gets pregnant repeatedly, it all falls away and she loses that confidence and that self possession, which i find quite tragic, actually.
1: It is. Of course, you know, nine babies in what was it, 20 years maybe?
0: We're constantly being sidelined by not just pregnancy, but indisposition that goes with it nausea, postnatal depression, recovering each time. I mean, I find it actually quite astonishing that a woman of her stature, who is what, four foot eleven, could pop out nine babies without dying in childbirth or any of them dying, being born. I mean, it it goes against the demographic and the statistics that she and Albert should produce nine children without any of them dying in infancy. Okay, Leopold was a haemophiliac, but even he survived into his 30s. I think it's extraordinary. that Victoria, she must have been incredibly robust.
1: Yes, yes, she must have been. So, at this point, Lord Melbourne enters the story. Tell us about him.
0: Well, um, I think, to be truthful, I think this is where the TV series is slightly at variance with the history as I see it. Lord Melbourne, who was Victoria's Prime Minister, was 58 years old when she came to the throne. And, of course, the Melbourne you see in the television series is still a relatively handsome and uh, very attractive man. Now, Victoria, I think, had an enormous adoration of Melbourne. It was real hero worship. He was the lost father she never knew. Her father died when she was a baby. She needed a strong male figure in her life to look up to. And, of course, there were subsequently a succession of them. Melbourne became an enormous friend, advisor, confidant, teacher, companion to her. Um, The the TV series makes much more of a romance of it. Um, It depends how you read that relationship. Uh, At the time, the gossips claimed the Queen wanted to marry Melbourne. I personally don't believe that. I think she had a pash on him like she had a pash on other people who came and went in her life. Um, but um, he was uh, undoubtedly the man who molded her as queen in those first three years before she married Albert.
1: Well, it's not, I mean, he obviously was her mentor, and she's a young girl. It wouldn't be surprising if she, um, you know, was kind of smitten with him, but There's a vast gap between that and actually wanting to have a
0: relationship, and he's 40 years older than she is. That's where you will find the TV series differs.
1: Right. No, Um, I understand, and it makes sense. And and people
0: fell in love with it. I mean, the I I watched the Twitter response uh, out of interest as a historian, and people in this country when the thing went uh, when the series went out. Absolutely went overboard for Victoria, and the wonderful performance of Rufus Sewell. He is mesmerising as Melbourne. He is so moving. It's it's a beautifully developed and written and acted part of the story. It's it's superlative, um, and of course, the, I think the young team fans really connected with this incredible hero worship Victoria had for him. And they were all absolutely heartbroken almost when Albert came along and stole <laughs> Victoria from Melbourne. He certainly looked upon her as a daughter he didn't have, you know, and had a huge affection for her. And she kind of revived his rather fading final years. He was rather tired and bored with life and looking forward to retirement. And suddenly he was confronted with this feisty, demanding and curious young woman who wants to know about everything and wants to monopolize his attention. I think she wore him out, actually. He has an interesting
1: history of his own. He was the husband of oh, Lady Barry. Caroline Lamb, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And had a very unhappy life with her because she ran off with um, Byron, of course, Lord Byron. And then he came back to him and he wouldn't divorce her. And in the end, I think She demanded separation. They had three children, two of which died very young, and their third child um, had epilepsy quite severely, um, Augustus, and he died when he was about 19 or 20. And so Melbourne, you get the sense of in the series, is a very sad and solitary and lonely man who's kind of lost out really in the romantic stakes, and Victoria fills a part of his heart that's been kind of cold and empty and neglected. You know, he he kind of rediscovers uh, an interest in life and an affection for her and for things through her. And it's beautifully done in the TV series. But I think there might be some historians or even, you know, well-read readers who might argue with the interpretation.
1: So one of the other people that Victoria seems to fall for, at least in the... uh the TV series, or the novel, is um, Alexander of Russia, the future Alexander well,
0: II. Yes, well, I do talk about that in my book. I describe what actually happened. Um, she was totally swept off her feet by Alexander, who arrived on a, an unofficial visit to England in 1839, not long before Albert came, you know, and the, the die was cast. Um, she and Alexander both fell for each other. They were extremely besotted. And Alexander was pretty impetuous. And when word got back to the Tsar, Nicholas I in Russia, that he was getting far too friendly with the young queen, he was ordered back to Russia pretty damn quick because there was no way you could have had a marriage between the heir to the Russian throne and the British queen. It would have been politically a nightmare and um, just not on the cards. But... No, Victoria apparently was in floods of tears when Alexander left and told Lace and she'd really lost her heart to him. But of course, you know, three months later, along comes Albert. <laughs> Alexander's very quickly forgotten.
1: So let's talk about Albert,
0: because when but You know, he... that's such a teenage thing, isn't it? Isn't it? That's <laughs> what I love about it, you know. He was at that, that highly impressionable uh, teenage kind of phase of, falling in love every five minutes, right. but it makes her real, it makes her believable.
1: Yes, and again, it's it's so much what we don't expect of her. Mm. So when she first sees Albert, she's not that taken with him, uh, he has to come back
0: more. Yeah, well, in 1836, when he was sort of steered in her direction by Uncle Leopold, because Uncle Leopold and his sister, who was Victoria's mother, both set their sights on Albert as the ideal candidate uh, as husband. When he was brought over in 1836, still a very pudgy, shy, diffident teenager who liked to go to bed early, Victoria wasn't in the least impressed with him. She thought he was a bit of a kill, you know, a party pooper. Um, but when Albert, it's classic, and I just love it. I mean, you couldn't make it up. When Albert comes back in 1839, October, with his brother, and there's that scene where he arrives and Victoria takes one look at him and she said she saw Albert, who was beautiful, you know, immediately she's totally transported by him because the classic fairy fairy story frog has turned into this handsome prince.
1: And he really is a very good looking man or was a very good looking man. Oh, he was terribly
0: handsome. Very, very handsome. But unfortunately, he lost his looks awfully fast. He lost his hair very early and also went rather podgy. But he was plagued by dreadful ill health. And I've written all about that in my own earlier book, Magnificent Obsession, which is all about the death of Albert. Because I do believe he suffered from very chronic condition. He, he was not Killed by typhoid fever and i argue that uh, in my my book which is being reissued in america by the way um if, if anyone's interested in knowing the latest story about uh, the the run up to albert's death and how the queen coached in those dreadful first 10 years of catastrophic grief um the book's called a magnificent obsession and it's being reissued by st martin's press my publisher To chime with the series coming out in America.
1: Oh, excellent. So tell us about Albert as a person, because I think he generally gets very short shrift um, in the public mind.
0: Mm, Well, I don't know. It kind of falls into two camps. There are those who see this gorgeous, romantic, handsome Ruritanian prince in his wonderful, um, you know, breeches and red jacket at the marriage, and thinking what a rom- wonderful romantic hero he was, but that romantic image very quickly vanished. It evaporated into this very troubled and worn down and tired man who was a really a terrible prude, and who stifled a lot of Victoria's natural impetuosity and liveliness. I, I have great sympathy for Albert, but you know, when people ask me, I don't think it was this cosy, turtle-dove love match in the way history uh, has so often portrayed it. I think it was much more initially a marriage of duty. He knew very clearly from a very young age that his role in life was to be consort to a queen. He was educated for the job. He was prepared for it and drilled for it. And when he came to England, leaving Coburg. In January 1840, to marry Victoria, he wept. He didn't want to leave his home. He was very, very anxious and apprehensive about this enormous role he was taking on as husband to a queen. I'm not saying that he didn't love Victoria, but the great gushing fountain of love was and always was Victoria, rather than the other way around. He, I think, was the passive partner who allowed himself to be adored and loved and revered and worshipped by Victoria. I think his love was more contained and more complex than hers for him.
1: That's really interesting. So was he more than Victoria the uh, impetus for what we think of when we think of the Victorian age, that very repressive,
0: Absolutely. It was an Albertian Mm -hmm. age. Mm-hmm. And I argue this in, in, in the book I was just mentioning, like all that kind of straight-laced morality and prudery and priggishness really came from Albert. Victoria was a full-blooded Hanoverian, and I think if she'd married a more kind of feisty, full-blooded husband, things might have been a lot different. But... Albert was the constraining one in terms of public decency and morals and the one who got hysterical about any possibility of any stain on the monarchy or any, you know, bad press or scandal. And really the real Victorian age didn't start, I don't think, until the years of the great jubilees of 1887, 1897, those great final years of empire And all the ceremonial and this great aging um, queen as a huge figure, you know, head of state, a huge emblem of the British Empire. That to me was the great Victorian age. Um, But the early period up to Albert's death in 61 was really much more about Albert. It was also about Albert's vision for Britain, all the things he wanted to achieve in promoting British industry and arts and education and and culture and the way he took such a passionate interest in industry, you know, the great exhibition, all that whole period, 21 years up to his death, was Albert's age, really.
1: So, he, um, I mean, it's obvious that Victoria fell in love with him because he was young and beautiful and whatever,
0: but What was it
1: about him that held her interest, or did
0: it throughout? Oh, totally, totally. She never looked at another man after Albert. I mean, except much later on, she admired. She always admired handsomeness in men, good looks, beauty. She admired her beautiful Indian troops when they came over for the um, and the big celebrations of empire and jubilees. She always admired good-looking men, uh, aesthetically. But in terms of Albert, from the moment she married him, Albert was a saint. He was Albert the good. He became this plaster kind of saint. She created that image of Albert, you know, beyond reproach, which he was really. You know, he never put a foot wrong. He never had a mistress. Probably the first male royal consort in history not to have a string of mistresses. And, and she revered him and idolized him and spent her whole time telling all their children there'd never be a patch on their glorious, wonderful, perfect father, which, of course, made them all deeply um, insecure uh, and lacking, feeling lacking, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so she would never hear a word said against him. Mm-hmm. Albert was too perfect, too divine, too wonderful. And from then on, she kind of persuaded herself she could never aspire to be as good and as perfect and as clever as him. So she kind of allowed him to talk down her own abilities and and make her feel she couldn't do the job without his help, that she couldn't make decisions without him. And um, he was a hugely guiding influence. Effectively, Albert was king, king in all but name, and everyone knew that. And the more pregnancies she had, And the more time went on and the more she was sidelined by it all, the more he really was running the show.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can see that, even though he himself was sickly, as you're saying.
0: Yeah, but, you know, he was the one who guided her in all the big, serious decisions, the critical points over foreign policy and this, that, and the other. It was Albert, you know. And yet,
1: for all that, she really resisted getting married or is that part of the
0: TV show too? Um, well, she resisted until she saw, ah. <laughs> she saw Alexandra and then she saw Albert oh, quick, quickly afterwards. No, it all went out the window. You see, when she became queen, she was released from imprisonment, effective imprisonment at Kensington Palace, being stuck with her mother and Sir John Conroy. Uh, but, so when she came to the throne and moved her mother out of her bedroom and got rid of Conroy, she suddenly discovered the glorious freedom and power she had as queen to do what she wanted, when she wanted. Of course, she didn't want to be married and be constrained by what she knew would inevitably happen, as it did happen to women then, uh, you know, inevitable pregnancy and childbirth one after another after another. She wanted to enjoy her time. She loved staying up late. She loved going dancing till three in the morning, going to the opera and the theater and And, you know, playing cards still and gossiping into the wee wee small hours. And she knew she'd have to give all that up once she married. So she was very clear in her mind she didn't want to get married for two or three years after becoming queen. But then, of course, Albert is brought back in October 1839. She sees him and she is lost. Everything goes out the window.
1: And the pregnancies start almost right away.
0: Well, she fell pregnant, I think, well within a couple of months and then the next one within about three months as well. So she spent the first uh, two years of married life permanently pregnant, pretty much, almost. Um, and she was really annoyed. She was furious because she she wanted Albert all to herself. And really, uh, there are some ugly things one has to confront as Victoria gets old and you see the relationship. She resented the children. They got in the way of her time with Albert. She didn't want to be pregnant over and over and and over again. She didn't enjoy pregnancy as some women do. She hated giving birth. She did not want to breastfeed and point blank refused to do so. She was not a natural hands-on mother at all. In fact, she didn't like handling little babies. She found them awkward. Um, She had difficulty with being a mother and, and, and with young children around her because they took her away from her precious Albert.
1: It's too bad someone didn't explain to her that if she had press feed, fed, she might not have had so many pregnancies. But.
0: Yeah, well, but she liked sex so that much, we know, <laughs> though there's no, no evidence left to, to pinpoint exactly how much and how often, but she certainly had a, a very successful sex life with Albert.
1: So, um, we're running out of time, so we're not going to get to go into all of the wonderful details in the book about Victoria's world and uh, other things that happened. There were a couple of assassination attempts early on. No,
0: no, not assassination. No, I always get annoyed when people talk about them as assassination attempts. Oh, okay. They were were events involving a a deluded attention-seeking young man who didn't even have properly loaded Pistols, they were not assassination attempts. They were attempts at at gaining the Queen's attention and drawing attention to themselves. I stand by the press. The press press built it all up as assassination attempts.
1: Okay. Um, But I'd also like to mention that because the book is a companion volume, it's filled with beautiful pictures and. it has a behind-the-scenes section about the creation of the TV series. Yeah. So excerpts from Victoria's letters and diaries and quotations and menus and programs and all kinds of documents. So people should look for this book for itself um, as well. it's well meant as to for be a
0: standalone give. book. It's mm-hmm. not, I mean, I, the way I wrote it and the way we put it together was so that it could be enjoyed quite separately from the television series okay it's got stills from it but the actual text that i've written is basically telling the story of the first three years of well before that but mainly the run-up to her becoming queen in the first three years until she meets them and and, and marries albert and has her first child
1: and also it's very readable i mean i I know a lot of people run into history at school and lose interest and think of it as some kind of very dry as dust thing. This book is not that. It's it's not a novel. It's, it's very true to the facts. But it is written with a very lively, readable style.
0: That's how I deliberately wanted to write it, because the wonderful thing about the series, and if it achieves one thing, it's the one that is the most important thing. So many young people, particularly have said, watching the series, and I've seen the comments on Twitter, I want to read more. I want to know more about Queen Victoria. Gosh, this history is really interesting. I wrote it with those people in mind who, who aren't, you know, have no real experience perhaps of reading history at all before, who wanted to find out more. But in a way, I wanted to write it in a way that was accessible to them, that was interesting, and told the story. Because history is story after all and that's the way I like to write it
1: Yes, well I would say you definitely succeeded Well thank you If you could say one thing to our listeners that you want them to hear about Queen Victoria uh, what would it be?
0: I want them to see that this, forget about the image of this dumpy, miserable old widow, she was such a vibrant, intuitive lively, clever but also flawed personality what I love about the, the the series is it shows her with all her flaws and failings it doesn't idealise her uh, and it shows this incredibly strong and self-possessed young woman taking on an enormous onerous responsibility at 18 years old and rising to that challenge with, com- with tremendous uh, aplomb actually I think I think there is a lot to like about Victoria, and I hope it makes people begin to like her and see that the the young woman who came to the throne in 1837 was quite different from that terribly sad, miserable widow. Uh, That was an enormous tragedy, the loss of Albert. But the years preceding that were very happy ones for most of the time.
1: That's great. So you you have the new book that's coming out next month.
0: Um, yeah, called In the Revolution, which is about the revolution in Petrograd in 1917 because it's the 100th anniversary this year.
1: So are you already working on another project?
0: Yes, I'm doing one last book on the Romanovs. Oh. And it's with the very much in mind that, of course, 2018... Is another important hundredth anniversary, which is the hundredth anniversary of the murder of the Romanos in Katrinburg. And I have felt ever since I wrote my researched and wrote my first book on the Romanos in 2007. There's one big part of the story that hasn't yet really been discussed and and some answers found, and that is why didn't they get them out? Why didn't they save them? Why did all their royal cousins, all the crowned heads of Europe to whom they were related uh, quite closely. Why con- Why did they collectively fail them? Why could no one get the Romanovs out of Russia and say those children? Those children should not have been so cruelly and brutally murdered. Um, and that's a question I'm, I'm asking, and it's re- involving a lot of difficult and complex research in many countries and many languages but it's the final part of the puzzle that I feel the challenge of trying to unravel at least. Whether I'll succeed I don't know yet.
1: Well I wish you all best success with that and thank you so much for
0: sharing your time with us today. It's been a pleasure thank you for having me
1: And thank you for listening to our podcast Once again I'm CP Leslie And today I've been speaking with Helen Rappaport about Victoria, the heart and mind of a young queen. You can find out more about her at www.HelenRappaport.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at Fic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.